Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Hi, how are you? Fine. So do you ladies... Uh, come here often? Do I come here? I come here a bit. I'm here, uh, you know, from time to time. Do you go to school here? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So I think I had a class with you. Oh, yeah? What class? History. Maybe? Yes. I think that's what it was. You don't necessarily... I not remember me. You know, I like it here. It doesn't mean because I go here. I'm a genius. I am hey. very smart. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Good. How you doing? You want it? What, uh, what class did you did you say that was? History. history. Yeah. Just history. It must have been a survey course then, huh? Yeah, it was. It was surveys. Right. You should check it out. It's a good course. It's a good, good class. Oh. How'd you like that course? You know, frankly, I found the class you know rather. Uh, Elementary. Elementary. Yeah. You know, I don't doubt that it was. Yeah. I, uh, I remember that class. It was, um, it was just between recess and lunch. Clark, why don't you go away? Why don't you relax? Why don't you just go away? I'm just having fun with my new friend, that's all. Wait, we could have a problem? No, 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 there's no problem here. I was just hoping you might give me some insight into the evolution of the market economy in the southern colonies. My contention is that uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, the economic modalities, especially in the southern colonies, could most aptly be characterized as agrarian pre-capital. All right, of course that's your Hang contention. On a You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Moxian historian, Pete Garrison, probably. You're going to be convinced of that till next month when you get to James Lemon. Then you're going to be talking about how the economies of Virginia and Pennsylvania were entrepreneurial and capitalist way back in 1740. That's going to last until next year. You're going to be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital-forming effects of military mobilization. As a matter of fact, I won't because Wood drastically underestimates the impact Wood of social Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions predicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers. Work in Essex County, page 98, right? Yeah, I read that too. Were you gonna plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own? Is your own idea just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend? See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're gonna start doing some thinking on your own and you're gonna come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on an education you could have got for a dollar 50 in late charges at the public library. Yeah, but I will have a degree and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-thru on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. But, I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. No, man, there's no problem. It's cool. It's cool? Yeah. Cool. Cool. How you like me now? <laughs> My boy's wicked smart. I love the last line. My boy's wicked smart. And for those of you who don't know, it has nothing to do with wickedness. We're not endorsing that here. It's, uh, wicked is like a Bostonian term for exceptional or, or awesome. <laughs> not encouraging wicked believers here. It's kind of a... Well, let's talk about that. Wicked, smart believers. Because, I mean, let's face it. The world doesn't view very many believers like that. I remember in middle school, I was, uh, I was in the eighth grade probably, and I started to question Christianity. I had been raised in church, raised with the Bible and believing in the Bible and in Jesus. And 
But I, I, as an eighth grader, started thinking, well, why should I believe this stuff? And so I went to a respected church leader, somebody that I trusted, and said, hey, why should I believe this stuff? I mean, why, you know, why should I believe that a dead man came back to life? Why should I believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And this was, this was before the Internet, before I had the chance to hear everybody else's opinions all over the place. I just started reading and thinking, and I went to him and said, hey, what's up? Why should I believe this? I didn't want to believe it just because mom and dad said I should. I didn't want to believe it just because the preacher said I should. So I asked him, I said, why should I believe this stuff? And I remember his answer. I remember where I was standing when I asked the question. I could tell you exactly. His answer was, you just have to accept these things by faith. And I remember as a, what, 13-year-old boy thinking, that's a terrible answer. Give me something more than that. I remember thinking, that's just lame. And from then on, Christianity became a bit of a struggle for me. It was just a little bit hard for me to swallow. Eventually, I met some people who helped me. Uh, we're we're going to talk today about a, a subject called apologetics, and, and we'll get into what that means. But they started giving me solid answers to those questions. Why should I believe a dead man came back to life? Why should I believe in the Bible? Why should I believe miracles happen? Why should I believe the earth was created like this? And so forth. Started asking questions. But I think most Christians, I, I found this picture online, which I thought was really sad and really funny at the same time. And it's not a very good picture. Lazy. That's the word that came to my mind seeing this picture was lazy. Isn't that just terrible? And fired. Fired was the other word that came to mind. But let's face it, most Christians, when they encounter difficulty, do exactly that. It's just the reality. If I was to ask you, name the number of highly educated, well-read Wicked smart Christians that you know, I'll bet you'd have a hard time filling up one hand. But God's called us to use our brains. God's called us to be thinkers. I was at the Grand Plaza in Brussels, Belgium years ago on a mission trip. And a really beautiful location. It's kind of a, a, like a, a cog of, of Europe. People from all over Europe come to this place. And so we were doing surveys on, on the Grand Plaza. It was just this little sur- like religious inventory survey that we had written up. And it was, it's just a way of starting conversations with people and talking to people about faith and talking to people about Jesus. And I remember meeting this guy, and he was from uh, Norway. And I asked him his name, and it was something like And I said, could you say that again? And he said, I said, Okay, I'm going to call you Bob. I said that in my brain. I, didn't, I, could, I could never get his name. I consider myself a relatively int- intelligent person, but I could not nail this guy's name down. And so we start doing the inventory questions, and, and one of the questions is, basically, what's your take on Jesus? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? He said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, I thought so. He said, I think Christians are idiots. He said, I just think you're all fools. He said, he, 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 we ended up not even doing the rest of the survey. He said, he said, Christianity is a crutch for weak people to lean on. And then he went through several of his reasons and some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, but several reasons he thought Christians were idiots. The story ends well, but I'm not going to tell you the end of the story quite yet. But I want to put yourself in that situation. You're starting up a conversation at work over coffee, and the person says, Christians are idiots. 
If Jesus ever existed, he never tried to convince people he was God. He's just like the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy. That's who Jesus really is. How many Christians could say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. I know why I believe this stuff and lay it out there for them. See, I want us to be a church of educated, wicked, smart Christians. It doesn't mean everybody's going to get passionate about this stuff. Not everybody is going to dive in headfirst and just learn, 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 learn. But it does mean when you come to an obstacle in the road, you don't just skirt and paint around it. You say, okay, well, let's confront this thing. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. And eventually, it will help you. So uh, we're talking about apologetics. It comes from the, the Greek word apologia, which is used eight times in the New Testament, and it means a defense. And a lot of times, it's, it's like a judicial defense. Most of the time when you see it used, it's by... Uh, the Apostle Paul, who uses it in a sentence like this, he says, hear my defense, which I now give to you. So they attack him, they bring him in in chains, they're going to throw him in jail. He says, oh, whoa, 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 let me tell you my side of the story. And so apologetics doesn't mean you're apologizing for anything. It doesn't mean you're sorry for anything, not in the original language. What it really means is, let me explain. And we need to be people that when they say, why do you believe in Jesus? We need to be able to say, let me explain. Let's talk about it. And you'll find that Paul based his entire apologetic, his his, his worldview, why he thought the way he thought on one thing. It's expressed in this passage. He's talking about God. It says, He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And you'll see here in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says this. He says, I determined when I was among you, he said, not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul, who was this guy who was going around tormenting, killing and imprisoning Christians had some amazing thing happen to him, which I'm sure we'll get into eventually. But his life was changed. Everything was changed. He was killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, to becoming the leading advocate of the Christian faith overnight. Something happened to Paul. And many times you hear Paul saying, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what I saw. And over and over he expresses, it's all about the resurrected dead man. There was this dead guy who is now alive. And the center of Paul's worldview was the resurrection of Jesus. And as far as I'm concerned, if I'm going to be the pastor of this church, the, the, the center of the worldview of our apologetic will be the resurrected Jesus. It's not going to be the age of the earth. Okay? It's not going to be the sovereignty of God. And it's not going to be big theological disputes that we all have to figure out. Do you dunk people when you baptize them or you, or you sprinkle kids? When this is not going to be the center of our world. Our world is going to be the dead man came back to life, and he can do that same thing in your life. That's the center for us, and that's where we're going to go in, in the months and years and weeks to come. Um, but let's talk about why we study this stuff, because really, it's a lot to ask somebody to study. If you have kids, you know what this is like. It's, it's a lot for a guy to stand up in front of you people and say, hey, start doing your homework. Go back to school. And I don't mean necessarily classical training, but I mean start reading. Start doing your best to understand. Start investigating. Start asking questions. Don't be the street painter that skirts around the issues, but instead, move the issues aside. Confront them when they come up. So here's a couple things that will happen. Is number one, it will encourage you in your faith, in your spiritual journey when you have solid answers. C.S. Lewis said it like this. C.S. Lewis said, The heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects as false. And so you see... In here today, you see people with their hands raised. If you'd seen me, you'd see me crying, snotting in a rag right before I get up here. And you might think, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to have that kind of faith or that kind of connection with God. Or you watch other people and you see, man, I, I want to see that. But the truth is you have these nagging doubts. 
Some of the things we're going to talk about is how could God send people to hell forever? How could a good God do that? Why is there so much suffering in the world if, if there's a God? If he's a good God, why is there so much suffering? And if those are the things that haunt you, it's real hard for you to get in God's face and say, I love you, I adore you, I want you. Yes, I want to be with you. And if your mind is constantly rejecting it, it makes it very hard for your heart to enter in, for it to become an impassioned relationship with God. But Jesus, it, it, scriptures say this, it says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is our four pillars. And then it says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And over and over in Scripture, Paul says this. He talks about how if Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. Meaning, if Jesus didn't come back to life, Christianity is a sham. And so it all centers on stuff that you can mentally give assent to. That's not the full relationship. Even like in my relationship with my wife, it wasn't just knowing that she liked me and that I liked her. There had to be some kind of a connection that happened. But the mind is a part of that. The, a part of a relationship is mental, is intellectual, is figuring things out. And so it will help you. If you start, if you're driving down the street and there's a tree in the way, it helps to push the tree aside. It helps to learn how to study, how to investigate the difficulties, and how to keep on moving past those difficulties. And the other thing it'll do is it will prepare you, it will equip you to talk to other people about your faith, which, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a natural progression. When you're excited about a relationship, you talk to people about it. One of our pillars is missions and evangelism, or missions and outreach. We believe the Christian message ought to be spread all over the world. If you think you'll never come to that conclusion, Daylight Church is probably not the church for you. We believe everybody deserves to hear about Jesus. But if you, have, if you feel intellectually ignorant, well, let me ask this. How many of you have the atheist friend that's much smarter than you are and oftentimes makes you feel stupid? A bunch of people. And a lot of people, you're not going to raise your hand even if I said, hey, who wants $100? Most, peop most people feel intellectually intimidated so they don't do any homework so that they can just hide. And I'm going to encourage you never to be that person. I, I read an atheist online recently that said this about debating Christians. He said, debating Christians is a lot like playing chess with a pigeon. No matter how well I play, the bird just knocks over all the pieces, craps on the table, and struts around like it's victorious. <laughs> now, I've, I've, heard, I've heard this same quote used uh, about atheists as well. I've heard it used about Republicans. I've heard it used about Democrats. It's a popular way of insulting the other class. But the reality is, most people, if they enter an intellectual chess match with someone else, most Christians are defenseless. They haven't done their homework. They haven't learned. If I say, why do you believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead? And your answer is, I just feel it in my heart. And then you strut around like you won the victory. You're the pigeon. We don't want you to be a pigeon. We want you to be educated, wicked smart. So here's how it ended. The conversation at the Grand Plaza, he gave his side. We didn't finish the survey. I just said, well, you know, that, it's really interesting that you think that, and I, I understand some of your points, and I've, I've read about some of your points, and can I share a couple things with you? He said, yeah, that'd be fine. And so maybe five, eight minutes, I just sat there and gave him my, my point-by-point, case-by-case idea of why I'm a Christian. Some of the facts about historical Christianity that led me to believe in Jesus. Some of the facts from science that led me to believe in a creator. And at the end of the conversation, this guy who said Christians are idiots and fools and it's a crutch for weak-minded people, he said these words right there on the plaza. 
He said, I've never heard any of that before. He said, I'm going to have to go home and rethink my worldview. And we parted ways. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what went on with his life after that. And I don't say that to brag on me at all. Remember, I was the guy next to the gymnasium saying to a respected church person, why should I believe this stuff? And thinking, man, you didn't give me any answers. For years and years and years, I didn't know why to believe. I didn't have any answers. But over time, doing my homework, studying, not skirting the obstacles, but running into the obstacles, I've heard most arguments there are out there at this point, and I feel pretty equipped to talk about them. So when we're on mission trips, here's what happens. Somebody gets an, 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 a conversation with the intellectual atheist, and they say, where's HL? Where's HL? Go, somebody go get HL. And I, I like being that guy, but it's pretty sad that I have to always be that guy. Isn't that pretty pitiful, really? And so I want to encourage you, be that guy or be that gal. The one who, when they say, well, I don't believe because of suffering. You say, well, it's a hard situation, but let's talk about this. And you feel confident and comfortable in addressing that situation instead of just skirting around it and acting like it doesn't exist. So here's some of the things we're going to talk about in the years to come. I wanted to start in on it right now, but I'm really hoping that we can do a marketing campaign, get it out there and say, hey, we're going to talk about an intellectual defense of the Christian faith, put up signs, hand out cards, and get as many people here as possible. So really, um, we're waiting on some of this. But here's some of the things we are going to talk about. And one is the problem of suffering. This picture tears me up. I don't even want to look at it right now. This is a, a young girl who lost her brother uh, during some of the fighting in Gaza. This is going on in our world right now. Right now, while we sit in here in our heated theater and our comfortable padded chairs, watching an HD projection on the screen, someone is in agony. Not just someone. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people in agony. Where is God? How is that possible? I'm not going to help you today. I'm not going to help you with that answer. I'm just going to lay it out there on the road, and I'm going to give you some tools so you can start trimming that dude down and try to make, move that thing aside. But I'm telling you, there's good, solid answers to that question out there. Excellent answers. And I want to encourage you to be the person that goes and searches them out and finds them. What about this one? Christ myth theories. Nowadays, they're saying maybe Jesus existed. He probably didn't. But even if he did, he never claimed to be God. That was just something that got blown up. And it was all the way in the 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea when, when Christianity became a government-sanctioned religion that Jesus actually kind of became God. And, and here you guys are worshiping a God that hundreds and thousands or 2,000 years ago, nobody even intended to be God. How do you answer that? I mean, they, they knew the Council of Nicaea was in 300 AD. You didn't even know that. So what do you do? Uh, and you cry. Now, let me say this. Let me, let me back up just one second, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a second. Let's say, for example, that Ashley meets somebody on the street, and I'm just going to use you as an example, and you're, you're not this person, but let's just pretend. Ashley meets the intellectual atheist on the street who says it was when it, was, it, was when it became a government-sanctioned religion, and Jesus never intended to be God. And let's just say she pees down her pant leg and says, I have no answers for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, and he says, you're a fool and an idiot. And she walks out, and they part ways. Let's just pretend, okay? Isn't it possible that conversation is precisely what that guy needed? He's going to go home that night and say, why did I treat her so poorly? Why did I attack her like that? Isn't it possible that's the catalyst that changes his heart or that sparks something that changes his heart? So my contention is you just can't go wrong. 
I really believe that. I believe if you're a lover of Jesus, you walk with Jesus, you talk to anybody and everybody anytime you can. There's, there's examples in Scripture of people who just met Jesus, and they go out and they talk to everybody in their city, and the whole city comes to know Jesus. And they don't know, they don't know anything. They don't know that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. There wasn't even a New Testament at that point. I mean, they, they, don't know, they know nothing. And yet they say, come meet Jesus, come meet Jesus. So don't be afraid, but be a learner. Don't be condemned and held down. Be somebody who learns from that. So Ashley goes home, and she can have two responses. She can go home and say, I'm an awful Christian. I'm terrible. I can't talk to anybody. I'll never be a witness. I'm, oh, it's just terrible. And she leaves the church 10 years later because, as I, as I read recently, somebody who was who, the death of a thousand nicks and cuts, she starts to experience that. Her faith just starts to collapse. Or she goes home and says, man, I didn't have a clue for that guy today. I guess I better do some reading. I guess I better ask somebody who knows. And she starts to learn. And then the next time, she has some answers. She feels a little bit more confident. So this is one of the things. Here's a big deal. Mathematical equation that I think is uh, pretty nonsensical is 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. This is what Christians believe about God. We believe in a trinity. Three people equal one person. This defies the law of non-contradiction, which is a foundational law of logic. If one person says the earth is flat, one person says the earth is round, they both cannot be right. It's the law of non-contradiction. So how do you deal with that? Now, they, they could both be wrong, by the way. The earth could be square. But they can't both be right. How do we get around that? That we believe something contradictory about God. I'm not going to give you the answers today. I'm going to put that tree out in the middle of your road and say, hey, go do some homework. And finally... This is the slide you're not allowed to take a picture of and post on Facebook. The eternal torment, and if you want, I'll just hold my Bible and go, ah, like that, and we can. Christians throughout history have believed that the eternal destiny of the damned is eternal conscious torture forever. How do we answer that? Do we believe that? Is that what the scriptures say? All the time you hear this accusation from people is, you believe this, there couldn't possibly be a loving God. Can we reconcile a loving God with hell? Are there any other alternatives? What's the deal with hell? It's something we don't want to put out there on the road in front of us. We want to just pretend it's not there and move around it and act like there's no mention of it in Scripture and say, we just love you and we want to hug you. Come to our church. We have to learn how to deal with it. It's in Scripture, clear as day. The people who knew Jesus and knew him well talk about it. Jesus talked about hell a lot. Gehenna is actually the word, but he talked about what we translate as hell a lot. How do we deal with it? Not going to answer that today, but we will do it eventually. Now, here's some random thoughts. I originally had a selfie of me holding my beard like this, and I looked at it and looked at it and thought, no. It was like the only selfie I can ever remember taking in like the last... I don't know, eight years, and I decided not to, so I gave you the thinker. Random thoughts. Apologetics is not about winning an argument. A lot of times Christians get a little bit of apologetics under their belt, and they've got this tool belt they carry around, and they can just pull out their hammer, and they can slap people around with it every now and then. That is not what apologetics is about. Scripture talks about tearing down strongholds, and there are people with intellectual and mental issues with Christianity that are legit. It's not just because they're mean. It's not just because they want to embrace a life of doing anything they want to do. It's that they've heard some intellectual arguments, and it really is a problem for them. And, and, and Peter says it like this. He says, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for your hope. 
Then he follows that up with, but do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. It's not about winning an argument. And you know what? Wicked smart never saved a soul. You will never be smart enough to convert someone from a non-follower of Jesus to a follower of Jesus, from a dead person to a living person, from a hopeless person to a hopeful person. You can't do it. Your words can't do it. Your brain can't do it. You might be able to help them along that path. You might be able to break down some strongholds that keep them from that. But the minute you start thinking, I can argue people into God's kingdom, is the minute you've lost track of what the kingdom is altogether. And Christianity is a relationship that's at the center. Christianity has a relationship at the center. My relationship with my wife, you guys will probably get sick of hearing about my wife and child, but they're the closest relationships I have, so they're the easiest examples. I don't get her. I think any man that's married in here, any man that's ever been married, will say, I don't get her. Yeah. And women will say, that's because you're a bozo. But I don't, do you see, I don't have to understand every nuance of every thought that goes through her head, and I don't think that I'd even want to. I don't have to get it all to be connected to her. I don't have to understand all the difficulties to adore her and love her and embrace her. And it's the same way with God. There is something to orthodoxy, to to believing and knowing the right stuff. But I'm telling you, orthodoxy does not trump relationship. You could be right about a whole lot of stuff and be on a highway to hell as fast as you could possibly. You could be wrong about a whole lot of stuff and right smack in the sweet arms of Jesus. I believe that. That's not to diminish what is right. It's not to diminish what is true. You seek what's right, you seek what is true, but you don't ever let knowing the right stuff get in the way of connecting with the right being, connecting with the right God, being transformed by Him. So don't ever let apologetics become your idol. Don't let it become your God. Let's talk about just some resources. Um, so here's, here's some tools that you can use. They're some of my favorites, and I'm just going to lay them out there and you can start learning from them. A few of them are books, and I'm... Um, I'm friends with a couple of these guys, acquaintances, I guess is the better, better word. But Lee Strobel, super guy, he was, he was a, a, an award-winning journalist uh, that was an atheist. He and his wife were atheists, and they, he, wanted to, he set out to disprove Christianity, and in his research, became a Christian. And he's written these books, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ, The Case for the Creator, uh, There's a Case for Christmas, a case, there's all kinds of cases in Lee Strobel's docket at this point. But they are like the layperson's guide to apologetics because what he does is he asks these very difficult questions. Why should we believe the Bible was the word of God when it was written by men who were fallible? And what he does is he finds the leading, most prominent Bible scholar out there and he goes and interviews them on this topic. And then he asks the question, what about hell? And he goes and finds a great theologian that has studied hell and written books on hell and interviews them. And so this is just a book of interviews. These are books of interviews with the most brilliant minds alive. And so I really, excellent foundational place to start. Now, apologetics is a bit like the, uh, the blooming onion at Outback. Is you peel off a little bit on the outside, and all that does is reveal something meatier on the inside. And you peel that off, and it gets a little meatier as you go until the center, and you find the core. Apologetics is like that. This is, this is foundational stuff here. And what you'll find is 
He'll say, what about hell? The expert will say this. And the atheist can always say, well, what about this? And then the Christian has another tree set out in front of them. And so they have to go do some more research and do some more study. They peel back the onion a little bit and they learn a little bit more. But these are the foundational spots. These are the places to start peeling back the onion. There are far more scholarly, deeper works that are more professional than these. This is what I recommend for somebody just starting. The second one is a book called Letters from a Skeptic by Dr. Gregory Boyd. We did a book study on this this summer. He's a Christian apologist professionally and a pastor. He called his dad up one day, or wrote his dad a letter. His dad was a skeptic of Christianity. He said, Dad, can we talk about this stuff? You know, I, I do this professionally. I know you're not a Christian. I know you're not interested in Christianity, but can we talk? So his dad wrote him a letter back. He said, yeah, sure, let's talk. What about the Crusades? How in the world could a God let people in his name do the torturous, terrible, awful things that occurred during the Inquisition, that occurred during the Crusades, going out and just, just wiping out people, genocide? How could that happen? So Greg writes him a response, and he writes a response back to that. And this is a book filled with those back-and-forth letters. By the end of the book, his dad becomes a Christian. He embraces Christianity. But you get to see his spiritual journey and his questions as he asks, and he covers all the ones that we've talked about and more. Highly recommend it. Let me say this real quick. I don't agree with everything all these authors say. Some of the websites I'm going to give you, some of the, some of the podcasts, just, if you listen to them, don't think that these are representative of everything. Uh, Greg is an open theist, Dr. Boyd, which means God doesn't know the future. The future is still unfolding and God couldn't know. I disagree with that. Uh, so there's, there's areas of this. Don't just take this as gospel, but just take it as a foundational learning starting point. And the final book is by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. Uh, it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And also a very exceptional book on dealing with science and logic and is there such thing as truth, dealing with relativity, so forth. Pick that one up. Two more things and then we're done. A, 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 a website I really like, don't agree with everything on them, disagree strongly with some of the stuff they present, but it's called The Poached Egg. This comes from a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, if Jesus wasn't God, he was crazy like the person who thinks he's a poached egg. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that quote later. But it's thepoachedegg.net. But if I present this thing and I say one plus one plus one equals one, and you think, well, what, what about that? The Trinity, that's really tough, and that defies logic. Get on there and just type in the Trinity into their search engine, and I'm telling you, article after article after article is going to pop up from well-respected, eminent scholars in apologetics. Great, great resource. And my favorite podcast, I probably listen to it more than any other podcast, is one called Unbelievable out of the UK. It's unbelievable with a question mark. There's one that's unbelievable, and that's one you don't want to listen to. Unbelievable with a question mark. And what they do, they call it the show that gets people thinking. And they will bring in an atheist, and they'll bring in a Christian, and they'll say, let's talk about the creation of the universe. How did it happen? When did it happen? Why did it happen? Go. And let them debate. They just talk it out. They go back and forth. It's a neutrally moderated debate show between people of differing worldviews. So you've got one person that believes in eternal conscious torment in hell. You've got another person that believes in annihilation, that life ends. They put them in a room together. They say, talk about it. Go. And I love this podcast. And I've learned so much from it. And I've become more and more, more confident in my Christian worldview as I've heard both sides. As people have peeled back the onion in front of me, I've seen, I really believe this stuff. And finally, this picture again. I said it before, I'll say it again, don't be that guy. You're fired. Don't be the person that when you, you hear the hard stuff, you just pretend you didn't hear the hard stuff. Be the person that embraces the questions, looks for truth, because here's what I believe. 
I believe an honest search for truth ends in Jesus. Now we can talk about that statement. I know there's a lot of questions that pop up from that, question, uh, that statement. But I'm not afraid of people looking. I'm not afraid of people searching. I believe God has given all the evidence he possibly could so that people can see if they want to see. He's never intellectually raped a person. He's never taken someone and forced them to believe and made it so obvious that they had to believe. That's beyond his character. He can't do that. He won't do that. But what he does do is put enough out there where if you search and if you seek, you'll find. Okay, good question. I don't know that I would go so far as to say Paul committed multiple murders. Uh, he, was, he was the guy in charge when people were arresting, torturing, and killing Christians. So he was like the overseer. Um, so he, I, I, don't know, I don't know enough about his life to say whether he did or didn't. Um, but I can, I can still talk about the, the, the idea behind the question. I'm thoroughly convinced that there is no darkness deep enough and dark enough that light can't penetrate it. I'm thoroughly convinced that God is able to change anyone. Um, who, is, who is the guy that... One of the, one of the leading serial killers of all time, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy uh, killed, raped, and ate, what, 14 or 22 young boy? What's that? That's what I said, Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, he, yeah, he did, that, he did that stuff, and he did it in that order, if that tells you anything. Um, in prison, he started a correspondence with a lady uh, by mail where she sent him a Bible and said, there's hope for you. He started reading the Bible. He wrote back, and he said, I read it. Send me more stuff. And she started sending him more and more literature, and they developed a friendship of sorts. My understanding is that Jeffrey Dahmer experienced a radical life change while in prison. The people who knew him well, the people who ministered to him, the prison chaplains, my understanding is they all confirmed this was the real deal. I mean, he was a changed man. And if Jeffrey Dahmer, who killed, raped, and ate young boys in that order, can be changed and can be saved and be set free. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. He still stayed in prison. He still died in prison. So there's always consequences to, to badness, to evil, to darkness. It always, it, it always plays out. But Jesus has a way of stepping in and cleaning up and, and fixing and shining the light on dark situations. So, so Paul, if, if, if Dahmer could be saved, and, and the reality is if you could get in my brain and see some of the thoughts I've had, You'd say, how in the world could he ever pastor a church? And I'll bet if I could get in your brain, you'd be thoroughly embarrassed. See, there's nobody clean. There's nobody worthy. There's nobody that gets there because they were right, because they were good. It's all because Jesus died and was resurrected, and he comes into dead situations, and he brings them back to life. And so Paul was just one example of that. Excellent question.